Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nichelle De Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Jennifer S. Light, who is the Department Head of the Program in Science, Technology, and Society, and a Professor of the History of Science and of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. We'll be talking about her new book, States of Childhood, From the Junior Republic to the American Republic, 1895 to 1945, published by the MIT Press in 2020. And for everyone listening, MIT Press has made her book open access to download from their site, which is very exciting. Welcome, Jennifer, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Nichelle. Could you begin by telling us a bit? Oh, sorry. Hello, Jennifer. Could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background, um, your research interests, how you came to work at the intersection of these fields? Of course, Nushel. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Well, my work for the past 20 years or so has straddled the history of science and technology, the history of architecture and urbanism, and the history of media and communication. At various points in my career, I've held academic appointments in each of these different fields, but it's really the combination that most excites me. When I was just starting out uh, in grad school, I noticed a number of parallel conversations in these fields that had yet to intersect. So just to give you one example that sticks in my mind 25 years later, um, historians of architecture were writing about the vision versus the reality of architects and planners' efforts to control human behavior through the built environment. And at the same time, historians of technology were having a conversation about how much agency could be attributed to technological devices and systems when it came to thinking about social change over time. So in other words, both fields were coming at similar questions about determinism, whether environmental or technological, through different lenses, and they did not seem to be talking to each other. So that got me wondering, what might it mean to apply the lens of one field to the subject matter of the other? For example, to think about aspects of architecture and planning as sciences or as technologies, and to see what new insights that could reveal. So that's what I did with my first book which, among other things, explored how cybernetics and system sciences shaped the approaches that planners and public officials took to understanding and managing cities in the mid-20th century. So I looked at these figures as actors within the history of science and technology and connected them to larger forces like the Cold War which had been foundational to understanding the histories of 20th century science and technology, but less prominent in histories of city planning and management. Doing this sort of uh, trick, basically reframing the object of study from one discipline through a lens imported from another has been an incredibly generative method I pretty much used it in all my projects ever since, and I recommend it to students as well, because it leads to new ways of thinking about old topics. And it's also a great way to broker conversations across fields. As my own career has unfolded, it's been really exciting to see cross-disciplinary conversations growing stronger thanks to younger generations of scholars who seem much more 
naturally comfortable moving across fields in their work. That's really fascinating. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing a little bit about how you've approached your many works, three at this point, uh, if, I, if I'm correct. Um, and one thing that's really struck me about all of the titles um, in your books, of your books rather, including States of Childhood, is the clever titles. Um, with this project in particular, did it grow out of your previous works? Uh, and if not, uh, what led you to it? Well, thank you so much for the compliment, Nushel. Yes, I struggle with titles, um, so that's really nice to hear. Um, yes, States of Childhood is a direct descendant of several earlier projects. Um, my interest that I was just talking about in applying a lens from the history of science and technology to the history of architecture and urbanism led me to pursue several investigations of urban simulations and their significance in American urban history. Coming primarily out of the history of science and technology, as I did, where modeling and instrumentation more generally are major topics, I found it somewhat odd that histories of the built environment didn't really have much to say about the conceptual tools that experts used to understand and ultimately to shape cities. And I wanted a deeper understanding, um, you know, did these things make any difference in how urban history unfolded? If so, how? And so I've basically been coming at this question ever since in various ways. I was just talking a little bit about my first book, um, as part of its story, I touched on computer simulations, satellite imaging, and early GIS in city planning and management during the Cold War. That's one category of urban simulation. And we, we kind of recognize it as such because it looks like the technologies that architects and planners use today. My second book looked at another kind of urban simulation, which was a variety of statistical mapping technologies used between 1920 and 1960 or so in urban renewal and predecessor programs. Of course, we're, we weren't, at least at that time, used to thinking about maps as simulations, but when you dig in and see what map designers were talking about and how they were talking about the potential uses of dynamic mapping, we can see a direct precursor to the kinds of computational-based tools used in later parts of the 20th century or even today. I've also pursued some smaller scale projects on related topics, for example, how the Federal Model Cities program in the 1960s and 1970s invested in simulation games as a way to broker new kinds of citizen participation. And these games were everything from tabletop games where you could move housing and other amenities around a game board to um, imagine a cleared parking lot, like a giant chessboard with boxes that people could move around, uh, kind of an immersive environment of a small scale city that they could design and redesign to offer their input. Now, my interest in all of these urban simulations is as a historian, but of course it did not escape my notice as I worked on the Model Cities project in particular, that today's architects and planners are increasingly using computational tools and simulations to bring public voices into the design and planning process. That got me wondering about the history of participatory urban simulations before computational tools became widespread, and that is what led me to Junior Republics. That's really fascinating. And it is true that the question of the simulation uh, looms large in your book. Uh, but before I come to questions on simulation um, and on mimicking, I would like to really start with 
what exactly uh, a junior republic is. Could you share a little bit about what it is, both socially and architecturally, uh, and talk a little bit about the founder of the very first republic, William R. George, uh, whose significant role you discuss in your book? Absolutely, Nuchelle. So the term junior republic dates to the 1890s, and it refers to a miniature city, state, or nation run by kids, with the idea that a non-junior republic, of course, is an actual city, state, or nation run by grown-ups. So the first junior republic was organized in 1895 in upstate Freeville, New York, by William George, who you mentioned. George was a New York City-based businessman, philanthropist, and participant in the good government movement. He was one of many urban elites at the time who were deeply concerned about the future fate of American democracy as immigration brought all sorts of newcomers to the U.S., many who had been raised under monarchies or authoritarian regimes. In New York City, these populations seemed partial to boss rule rather than to the rational technocratic governance that he and other good government advocates favored. George recognized, though, that children rather than adults were more likely to be amenable to his views about how government should work, particularly if he could find a fun way to communicate them. So in 1895, George took about 150 kids from New York City's poorest neighborhoods to upstate New York for a summer camp that became the first official junior republic. He provided them with a constitution, and along with a few adult helpers, they set up a simulation of the American political system with a president, a house, a senate, a supreme court, and so on, together with local government agencies like police and sanitation. Although adults helped get the experiment off the ground, they quickly turned over authority to the kids whose enthusiasm for this very strange summer camp exceeded George's expectations. Their professionalism playing roles like senator and police astonished him. So did their interest in debating political questions on the minds of adults in the period, like should women be allowed to vote in national elections? Now, you asked about the architectural details of this republic. So the physical setting for George's Republic was a farm with just a couple of buildings, which were initially reserved for the supervising adults and the kids lived in tents. That was very temporary, however. George decided that the Republic needed an economic system alongside its political system to give kids a true picture of American society. So he created a token currency. Uh, First, it was made of cardboard and later tin. Uh, and he invited kids to exercise their entrepreneurial muscles. The kids' entrepreneurship ended up being a key force behind the further development of the Republic's physical plant. So, for example, some kids set up architectural firms and contracting businesses, which drew up plans and then actually constructed new buildings on the campus. In those buildings and in tents, Other kids set up hotels, restaurants, and barbershops, with a few like the Waldorf being a nod to actual New York City institutions. There were other forms of entrepreneurship as well. For example, uh, the Junior Republic Citizen was one of several newspapers the children produced. Now, the Freeville Republic began as a summer camp, but kids were so into it that they begged George to stay on. With their help, he eventually made the Republic into a year-round institution, which was kind of like a reformatory and kind of like a vocational school. As the first group of junior citizens graduated into real life, they created an alumni association, which was 
another testament to the affection they felt for George and the Republic experience. And a side note here is that when I was looking in George's papers, which are held at Cornell, it just was absolutely astonishing. There were decades and decades of correspondence between George and the kids who came through his republic. They had such great affection for him and for this experience. Yes, it's this attention to detail um, of, you know, creating an almost identical replica of, of as you say, the grown-ups world that makes this so strange and so compelling. Um, so you described here what was, you know, in a sense, a summer camp, a more autonomous republic. But in the rest of the book, you also talk about certain junior republics that are instituted uh, in housing projects or as part of other institutions and weren't autonomous in the same way. So how did those differ um, spatially and socially from the one you just described? So this is a great question, Nushel, because it helps me talk a little bit about the evolution of the Republic movement. Not long after it was founded, George's Junior Republic became a tourist attraction. Quite literally, if you opened your Baedeker's Guide to New York State, you would see it listed. And so tourists, along with journalists and sociologists, flocked to see it. We may not have heard of what a junior republic is, so I had to explain this to you. But by the late 1890s, many people actually knew what it was. So uh, George's Republic became incredibly popular. Soon there was a wait list of eager participants. Uh, and as you might imagine, people were quite astonished by this idea of a reform-oriented educational institution that was so popular among child participants that the kids who were there begged to extend their stays while other kids begged to join. And again, back to George's personal papers, there are letters in there from kids who were not citizens saying, please, please, will you let me in? So quickly, public conversations turn to the question of how to create more republics. Well, as your question sort of implies, it was logistically challenging and also costly to start up independent autonomous institutions. George's admirers began to ask, what was really critical to the Republic experience in terms of the learning it provided and the enthusiasm it generated among kids? Did kids have to live in an environment that looked like the agrarian democracy of early America? Or was it the experience of role-playing adult occupations, particularly political ones, that was key to the learning and the fun? George's friend, Wilson Gill, who um, they knew each other because both were participants in the good government movement. Well, Gill set out to test this idea with an adaptation of the Junior Republic inside New York City schools. Gill organized what he called school republics or school cities, which were essentially student government organizations patterned after the local government. Kids held offices like mayor, city councilor, police, judge, street cleaning commissioner, and health inspector, and they exercised their authority on school grounds. Finding numerous examples of classrooms where former truants became the school republic's most upstanding citizens, as well as kids' testimonies that playing politics was more fun than baseball, Gill concluded, you know what, it's actually the role playing more than the simulated environment that's key here. This conclusion squared with the era's cutting edge developmental psychology, for example, the work of G. Stanley Hall, which suggested that kids at play typically liked to imitate adults. And it also aligned with educational theorists like John Dewey, whose vision for the future of education was to orient it around children's play and make learning by doing central to the curriculum. So we see there's sort of a groundswell of support for the Republic idea. 
and then a sense of questioning, you know, what's this really all about? Because George himself was not going around theorizing why it worked. He was more action-oriented. So Gill's finding uh, received wide attention such that by 1900, school republics could be found across the U.S. Other adaptations followed at boys and girls clubs, settlements, playgrounds, and much later came to housing projects as well. All of these variations were only part-time operations rather than 24-hour-a-day experiences like George's institution, but educators and youth workers were excited nonetheless. I really love the idea of people armed with bedeckers going around to see these junior republics. Um, and as you spoke, it 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 really, it, although it seems strange to me now, it's clear that there was a real proliferation of these republics. Um, and I couldn't help but notice that you had these really detailed footnotes. Uh, and I wondered, given the proliferation, given how different some of these republics were one to the other, I wondered how you delimited the research you had to do for the book. I know it's a bit of a digression, but as you as one tries to figure out what the scope uh, of a book is, uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how you decided which republics to focus on, which case studies um, to talk about in the book, especially as they cover locations from coast to coast. Could you talk a little bit more about the kinds of challenges that you faced as you tried to amass all of these in- all of this information? Absolutely, Nuchelle. Yes, you haven't mentioned it to listeners, but the book is about 460 pages long, and I think the notes comprise about 200 pages of it. So that's actually something that I am known for, which is writing books that hopefully are interesting in and of themselves, but simultaneously have the larger ambition of opening new terrain for other scholars to pursue. Um, So I look at the notes in all of my books, not just as me telling you where I have been, but also providing a guide to a rich topic that I think demands further investigation. Um, To understand a little better, though, how I put the story together, it's helpful to know a little more about George vis-a-vis his many admirers and imitators. George was quite a character, uh, and among his many quirks, he was a perfectionist who tried very, very hard to control the spread of the Republic idea, lest some of the imitators not do it justice and somehow discredit him. After opening up the Freeville Republic, he worked with a few patrons to get other independent republics up and running in Maryland, Connecticut, California, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. George was actually so skeptical that his admirers would get things right that he trained children at Freeville to serve as landing parties to settle these new republics, like colonists going off to a new land. He subsequently organized a national association of junior republics that essentially gave his stamp of approval to a limited array of imitators, which included the ones that he and his junior citizens founded, plus two others that had been established without his help. Notably, all of the republics in that organization were freestanding autonomous institutions, uh, which, as I explained, were ultimately in the minority on account of the many adaptations at schools and youth-serving institutions. So as I worked in this book to trace the history of the movement, I was looking both for institutions with some connection to George himself and those that had few or no ties. Wilson Gill, who I mentioned a little earlier, uh, was a friend of George and credited him for the ideas behind school republics. By contrast, a Salt Lake City juvenile judge named Willis Brown 
borrowed George's ideas and even some of his stories on the public lecture circuit, but failed to credit this work. Brown became famous for starting up a number of Junior Republic-like organizations that he called Boy Cities, and those Boy Cities operated during the school year at boys' clubs, churches, and YMCAs, and during the summer at a central Indiana summer camp. They were, they were you know, called Boy Cities, but these things were obviously republics, uh, George, knew about him um, and was very upset by the lack of credit for his ideas. Now, to knit all these things together into a coherent book, I put George himself at the center of the narrative, but he's orbited by these many other individuals and institutions. Each chapter tackles a couple of specific people and institutions that encapsulated key trends in the movement at any particular time. So, for example, chapter four takes up how the part-time nature of republics at schools and youth-serving institutions got educators and youth workers wondering about whether the republic concept could be adapted to children's lives outside classrooms and clubhouses to help regulate their public behavior. I describe how after about 1910, there emerged another variation on the Republic idea that aimed to transform children's experience in public into a giant role-playing game. Now, George himself created a new community-based enterprise he called Junior Municipalities which stripped the Republic concept down to its most basic elements of kids role-playing local government. Uh, and in the case of junior municipalities, uh, it was public officials in the local government the kids simulated who offered supervision and advice. George's junior municipalities were only one example of a much larger field. So other community-based republics, for example, include Milwaukee's Newsboy Republic, created by Milwaukee's Street Trades Department and serving 4,000 newsboys there. Most of that republic's activities took place in the city's streets, which were reconceived of as a miniature United States. So in this chapter, the discussion of George's junior municipalities offers an entry point to talk about the opening up of the Republic movement from campuses, classrooms, and clubhouses into America's city streets, as well as the spread of the belief that through role-playing, kids could learn to discipline themselves beyond adults' watchful eyes. It also recounts how public officials joined educators and youth workers as advocates for the junior republic idea. Now, of course, my challenge here, as in many other scholars and many other books, uh, was to how to balance deep dives into specific republics with an overview of broader trends. I hope I've struck a good balance and that the copious notes will invite others to dig in deeper to the republics of greatest interest for their future research. Yes, one thing that really comes in out through the book is that even though the children really seemed to enjoy the junior republics and became quite good friends with George, really the 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 primary task of the republic seemed to be to regulate children's public behavior, sort of give them um, a means by which to self-regulate, uh, if you will. And one thing that really struck me was your argument that through this copying or imitating of adult roles within the framework of the junior republic, childhood became distanced from adulthood in a in a kind of paradoxical way. And throughout the book, you show how over time junior republics helped shape a notion of the sheltered childhood as a disciplinary category. Could you give me some context for how childhood was previously viewed and why it seemed so important to replace that model with this new one? 
You're absolutely right, Nuchelle. This is simultaneously a book about the Junior Republic movement and a book about how role-playing served as a disciplinary strategy that helped to reshape the experience of American childhood well beyond republics. Long before I came along and wrote this book, scholars had established that American childhood underwent an important and huge transformation during the late 19th and early 20th centuries as kids moved out of the economy and public life and assumed a more protected or sheltered status. So a kid in America in the 1800s was part of the economy because at that time, the American economy was largely organized at the household level. This is often referred to as the family economy to denote how husbands and wives and children produced goods at home rather than go to stores or work for wage labor. With industrialization in the latter part of the century came mass produced goods, new kinds of wage jobs, and new economic and social expectations. So it's at this time that we see the emergence of the view, which still lingers today, that wage labor should be limited to mostly men, that women should be responsible for domestic activities, uh, which came to be understood as separate from that new economy, and that kids should somehow be protected from the economy in school and other supervised activities and given the opportunity to prepare for their future adult roles. Well, my contribution with this book is a deeper understanding of how the transformation of childhood actually took place. Kids were essentially asked en masse to reduce their own autonomy and social status. And I wanted to understand how exactly this disciplinary process occurred. So my argument here is that role-playing adulthood was a critical feature of the transition that somehow had been previously overlooked. Junior republics, child-only settings where kids role-played adult jobs to prepare for their future lives, um, you know, really bring this idea to light. But my argument goes beyond republics to look at schools and youth-serving institutions more generally, where we discover how in vocational education and home economics classes, in student government, in the Boy Scouts, in junior police programs, I mean, this could be one giant run-on sentence about all kinds of youth programs, similar sorts of role-playing occurred and helped to bring kids into these supervised settings in greater numbers. Now, I want to emphasize that my focus on role-playing comes directly from the prominent voices in this era. Perhaps not surprisingly, the period in which childhood is being redefined is a vibrant one in the history of developmental psychology and educational theory, as experts sought to understand what made kids different from adults how the maturation process unfolded, and how best to guide kids' development. As it turns out, when we go back to these uh, primary sources, we discover that central to the era's theories of the stages of child development is the notion of the stage itself. In other words, that dramatization and role-playing of adult life are critical to the developing identity of the child. G. Stanley Hall, who I mentioned a little earlier, was the most notable uh, writer on this view, but once you see it, it's pretty much everywhere you look in the psychological literature of that era. Similarly, today we associate child-centered learning by doing with John Dewey, but it turns out Dewey was only one of many, many educators in the period who shared the belief that if kids liked to pretend they were adults, well, then schools should make role plays the basis of educational experience. Yes, as I was reading your book, I began to look at home economics and girl guides and all the many things I did in school very, very differently. Um, 
and sort of started really thinking about what it meant that the what was originally child labor had been transformed into recreational activities. And and throughout the book, you talk in depth about how, you know, this this taking children out of the economy shifted over this half century between 1895 and 1945, and including how their labor was instrumentalized differently during the two world wars. Could you talk a little bit more about how things changed during that period, or perhaps how uh, you mentioned how women were taken out of the economy as well, perhaps how their experiences were commensurate or how they deferred in different ways. So one of my arguments in this book, Nuschel, is that the reduction of child labor in America that we associate with the decades between 1890 and about 1930 had two dimensions, the real and the rhetorical. Most histories of the emergence of the more sheltered experience of childhood focus on the very real transformation to children's experience, such as legislation restricting their work environments and hours, the rise and expansion of public schooling and vocational training, and the growth of youth-serving institutions which provided adult-supervised activities outside of school hours. From the research I did in role-playing, I came to understand that this focus on the real tells only part of the story because there was a rhetorical dimension to the reduction of child labor as well. So what do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is that in the new context of schools and youth-serving institutions where role-playing adult occupations was such a central activity, Child labor was not reduced so much as it was relocated and redescribed. This is a different sort of story that junior republics help us to see. When kids in these child-run societies made furniture, prepared meals, and policed their peers, they were widely understood to be role-playing adult jobs in preparation for the future. So in other words, they were doing things like what adults did, but not those things in and of itself or of themselves. That's all fine and good, but that framework ignores the very real economic value the kids generated for the institutions that ostensibly sheltered them. Having a child-run architectural firm build new dormitories, having child farmers and restaurateurs harvest and prepare food, having child police and jailers keep watch over those who violated disciplinary norms. Again, the list goes on. Um, All of those activities may have been dramatizations or simulations, but the economic value was real. Looking at what was happening inside junior republics helps us see that similar activities were widespread in schools and youth-serving institutions, even those with no republics. So, for example, in school systems like in Gary, Indiana, pupils made their desks and lockers, built playground equipment and gyms, they kept the school's financial records, They ran the lunchroom by ordering supplies and preparing and serving meals. They repaired school plumbing and heating systems, did health inspections, and tracked down the truant kids who didn't show up. All of these activities were celebrated as cutting-edge learn-by-doing. Because they were done for educational purposes and no money exchanged hands, they were not considered work. But of course, if those kids did the same tasks in the real world or the world outside the school, they'd get paid. And uh, notably, we still use this language of school versus the real world today. The redescription of child labor that I'm talking about could also be found when kids took their activities into public settings. Local officials embraced community-based republics and related activities like junior police and junior sanitary inspectors because deploying kids to enforce local ordinances and clean up neighborhoods saved them a ton of money. 
But public emphasis was typically on the developmental benefits to kids rather than the economic value to local governments. When we identify this rhetorical dimension to the reduction of child labor, uh, we discover parallels between children's and women's experiences of the shift from a family-based to a wage-based economy. Under the family economy, household work done by men, women, and children was recognized to be an economic activity. With the rise of a wage labor system, household work got redescribed as a non-economic activity, even though what women were doing at home would generate economic value if they did it somewhere else. The economic value of women's community-based activities, typically described at the time as municipal housekeeping, similarly went unrecognized. So we see how economic value ascribed to certain activities depended on who was doing them and where. And I think some of these assumptions still linger today. Uh, for example, in the view that households and schools are by definition outside the economy. Schools are nonprofit institutions. The only tax deduction you get for anything at your home is if you have a home-based business, and that's understood to you know, happen in a particular piece of your house, not the entire household. Yes, in the book, it becomes really clear that there's a paradox emerging uh, as the junior republic began to replace this model of the child as a miniature adult with with particular economic roles, with that of what you called sheltered childhood. And you describe how the young members of these junior republics were faced with what you call a double life, or a dual experience of both protected childhood and of virtual adulthood. And I'm really fascinated by your observation that these kids' dramatization of adult roles paradoxically took them further away from it, um, and you've mentioned this a little bit in the interview, but would you be able to talk a little bit more about how you use the term dramatization conceptually in your book uh, and perhaps in relation to some of the more explicitly architectural terms that you use, like miniatures, models, uh, reproductions and copies? So I think the most important point to make about this language of dramatization or miniature model reproduction, it's that this isn't me coming along in 2020 uh, and picking words that I think describe this era. It's that I'm recuperating the vocabulary from the period, which could be found across scientific journal articles how-to guides uh, on education and youth work, and even in the popular press. Um, you know, when tourists or journalists came to visit George's Republic, they would often discuss the model government or the miniature jail because the kids actually created an iron cage where they could put each other <laughs> um, when uh, kids violated the law. Um, so back to my larger point, though, that this is this is the language of the era. Um, so G. Stanley Hall and his many students did a ton to popularize the idea that children had a biologically based dramatic instinct. And they subsequently worked to systematically identify what kinds of dramatizations kids preferred at different ages and life stages or in different genders. So for example, playing house or school, cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers, medieval knights and queens, and so forth. These scientists and the many educators and youth workers who use their work to guide educational and recreational programming use this language as well. Um, similarly, double life, that's not my phrase. That belonged to William Forbush, who shows up at numerous points in the story. Forbush was an admirer of George, 
and modeled a summer camp called the USA on George's Republic in 1899. He later became a student of G. Stanley Hall and a prolific author on theories of child development applied to youth work. Forbush created two popular youth organizations, the Knights of King Arthur and Queens of Avalon, in which kids role-played the heroes and heroines of another era. Uh, So just as a side note, the interest in role-playing was not always about a direct simulation of some government job circa 1910. Sometimes there were programs that aimed to dramatize the experience of past eras. Medieval knights were very popular, um, the Knights of King Arthur being the most prominent example, but that was only one of many organizations. The Boy Scouts, which we're not used to thinking of as a role-playing organization, at its founding was understood that the kids joined it and they would role play the experience of explorers uh, in early America. Uh, But so back to Forbush, he later headed the American Institute of Child Life, which gave him a platform for his ideas. According to Forbush, the modern childhood that he and George and so many others were advocating was in essence, a double life. Because on the one hand, modern children were protected from real life and given the space and time to be kids. But on the other hand, a central feature of the new approach to childhood was giving kids the opportunity to prepare for their future, and role-playing was the most natural way to do this. So back to answering one final piece of your question, The architectural terms, uh, miniatures, models, and reproductions were used all over the place to describe things that were not necessarily architectural, and the dramatization similarly was used all over the place to describe things that were not necessarily role-play-based. But at the same time, by recuperating this language, uh, it really does seem that your book lends itself to being seen or read from a number of different lenses. I came at it as an architectural historian who is really interested in the urban planning dimension of the book, but it also opens up scholarship on education from Dewey um, uh, to Stanley to be examined from a lens of performance studies as well. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your framing of the Junior Republic as a mediated experience and which shaped the agency of the participating children in very specific ways can illuminate other studies on other kinds of simulation, other kinds of performance and real versus virtual experiences, especially at this time uh, when the, the boundary between the real and the virtual is becoming increasingly blurred? Yes. So uh, your question really hits it on the head, uh, the nail on the head, because what's especially interesting to me about the language of dramatization and double life from the turn of the last century is its resonance with contemporary work in performance and media studies Uh, which, as you suggest, opens up new ways to think about education and childhood, among other topics. Recent work in performance studies has devoted a great deal of attention to the ways in which various social categories, such as gender, race, and class, are performed in some way. What I'm doing in this book is articulating how more than 100 years ago, a range of prominent individuals and institutions already understood that childhood as a life stage was characterized by performance. That is a really generative idea that I hope other scholars will jump on to further investigate how the theory and practice of performance may lie in unexpected places 
and to further explore childhood and other life stages as they are performed, past and present. As somebody who is now officially middle-aged, for example, I wonder, how do I perform middle age? <laughs> Similarly, um, the articulation by Forbush, as I was just describing, that modern childhood was defined by its doubleness resonates with recent work in media studies about the lives so many people experience today, as you were saying, in which they routinely and even simultaneously inhabit real and virtual worlds. One aspect of the popularity of junior republics and other role plays of adulthood that I haven't touched on uh, yet is their links to the mass media of the day, which helps to make these connections even more clear. So before the rise of film and radio and TV, some of the most common mediated experiences in the United States were immersive environments that copied other places or times. To give one example, not far from Georgia's Freeville Republic, uh, there was Palestine Park, where visitors could wander through a miniature version of the Holy Land. Living villages that reconstructed settlements uh, such as uh, Cairo or Native American encampments complete with their inhabitants were also very popular as freestanding uh, amusements or sometimes brought together in world's fairs. The language of dramatization and miniature and copy that we were just talking about that was applied to describing George's Republic typified descriptions of these mediated experiences as well. This larger context helps us further appreciate why Americans were so enchanted with the concept of a participatory virtual experience of adult life for kids. It also opens up a huge range of topics to further study as part of media history. As we've been talking about, you know, we're not used to thinking about activities from vocational education to student government to Boy Scouts as part of the history of simulation or virtual experience. But many innovations in education and youth work were understood to be mediated experiences in the same category as technologies during the period. I'm hoping that the work I've done here, which stops in 1945, prompts other scholars to trace more recent uses of low-tech kinds of simulation and mediated experience in education and other contexts. I think of things like Model UN, Boys State. Uh, these are, of course, political simulations, but there are all kinds of simulations that teachers use um, that we don't really know so much about, but were very common in very many schools. Yes, what I really loved about the book was it not only made me rethink uh, some of the things that I look at, like exhibitions and world fairs from um, the early 20th century, but it really made me start thinking about my own childhood experience in school and the kinds of extracurricular activities that I did without questioning uh, and now it makes me think about how I performed childhood at that at that point and what ways in which I perform now. Um, and I wondered, because I started thinking very differently about the language around recreational or extracurricular activities versus, uh, you know, quote unquote, real world activities and the way we're conditioned to partition these activities. I wondered if you set out with this goal of changing perceptions around recreation or whether that was something that emerged during the project and, you know, whether there was something surprising to you as you um, as you delineated this this emergence of recreation. So I'm really glad you asked this question, Nuchelle, because I have never been uh, somebody who knows what my books are going to be about until I have actually finished them. I don't tend to write with outlines. I just kind of follow the topic in meandering ways and bring together a lot of fun and interesting details and, you know, see what emerges. So 
my original intention was to write some sort of history about the Junior Republic movement, which, of course, I had never heard of before I found it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is so weird. Like, what? I want to know more about this. Uh, so as with all my other projects, there were many interesting surprises along the way. Among them for this book was the discovery that as role play based activities came to be more and more common in the American youth experience, the language of dramatization that we've been talking about for a while uh, actually disappeared. So by mid-century, the view that many activities were dramatizations of some adult enterprise gave way to the assumption that these were authentic kid-oriented activities. Um, so that makes sense. You know, kids participating in student government or scouting today don't think of what they're doing as role-playing. And these activities themselves have moved away from their origins in copying some form of adult experience. So, for example, student government at my kid's school, I actually looked into the history of it because William George had gone to speak there back in 19-something or other. Um, anyway, you know, now they have a student council form, but there and as in many other schools, the idea of student congresses that mirrored local governments or the national government used to be the norm. So that's about what's changed. Um, what did linger from the earlier period is the belief that kids' educational and recreational activities are by definition outside the economy, despite evidence to the contrary. So for example, Girl Scouts selling cookies raise substantial funds for their organization. Boy Scouts' extensive service projects for local authorities and federal agencies like the U.S. National Park Service save tons of taxpayer money. Scouting, though, we widely promote for its benefits to kids, so we would never even consider the idea that these things could be child labor, despite the obvious economic implications. So what I think is gained from the sort of historical investigation I've pursued is a much deeper understanding of how and why we came to view kids' activities as being outside the economy. And this history opens up new questions to take to contemporary youth activities, not just Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, but we might think about grad student TAs or college football. Both TAs and student athletes have been agitating in recent years for greater recognition of the value they bring to educational institutions. It's been a really tough battle because of the longstanding view that students are, by definition, cultivating their human capital and deferring economic participation until they graduate into the real world. So I've been trying in this book to show another side of the story. Of course, you know, when kids are students, they get something out of the experience, but they could also be creating value for their institutions. Thank you so much for that very thought-provoking answer, and in fact, book in general. Uh, I've taken up a great deal of your time today and wanted to wrap up by thinking a bit about the future. Uh, are you working on something at the moment, or, or are there certain projects that are in the works for you? Yes, um, I am taking another dip into the history of education for my next project, and I'm going to be writing about the institutionalization of physical education, PE, in American schools between the 1820s and the 1920s. What I'm in the middle of right now is exploring how early plans for PE as a mind-body really fabulously interesting field lost out to the gym class that still predominates today and everybody seems to dread. Um, and the construction of school gyms seems to have something to do with the story. So you could probably figure out, even from just this brief description, once again, I'm moving between the history of science and technology 
and the history of architecture and urbanism. There's a new twist, though, um, with this project inspired by the many grad students in architecture and planning I've worked with over the past few years. One of the things that has been so fulfilling about working with these students is how they view history as a theoretical or action-oriented tool that can be applied to practice, a resource to help potentially improve on the past in future architecture, planning, and other activities. So I'm in the very preliminary stages of the new project and can't get too specific yet, but I think that there's something about the forgotten early history of PE that has the potential to inspire novel directions for bringing physicality into education beyond the dreaded gym class uh, in the 2020s and beyond. So check back with me in a couple of years and hopefully I'll have it all figured out. I look forward to it. Uh, thank you so much for a really fascinating conversation on your new book. Thank you so much. This discussion of states of childhood from the Junior Republic to the American Republic, 1895 to 1945 by Jennifer S. Light and published by the MIT Press in 2020 is brought to you by the New Books in Architecture channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.